You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything. I'm Chris Orban. I'm here in the studio with uh, Jake, Jake Ray. <laughs> Jake Ray. <laughs> Jake, Jake, Jake Ray. His last name is R A H E, uh, and I always, I always screw that up. Jake Ray and uh, Jake is kind of doing double duty this semester. So you are both the Steam Factory intern, and you're also with uh, the Lantern, which is the student paper at OSU. Mm-hmm. So you must be exhausted. Oh uh, yeah, very tired. <laughs> Especially finals just ended. Yeah, so. I can see it in your eyes. <laughs> the, the viewers at home can't necessarily detect that. <laughs> um, but I I brought you here today because we're we have an interesting uh, recording that I I, I think is of general interest. And so there's a podcast that you're involved in called The Student Slant. So say Mm -hmm. say a few words about what that podcast is about. Uh, The Student Slant is really a podcast from student journalists about the experience of being a student journalist at at a university like Ohio State. It's so large, you're basically covering a small city and just kind of collecting those stories and hearing from people and what it's like to be covering such a large place as someone who's just learning the trade. So gives tips, tricks, a little bit of stories too. It's nice. And uh, little known fact, I believe I've listened to basically all the episodes of the Student Slant, including the ones that were released the last few weeks. So nice. uh, I, yeah, I'm, I'm listening. There. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> um, and this one, this episode that we're going to listen to, I thought was was particularly fascinating. So mm-hmm. can you say a little bit about the event that the episode uh, focuses on? Yeah. So. Uh, Late 2016, it was November 28th, uh, we had a, uh, I don't know if you want to call it a terrorist attack or a school attack, uh, but we had a a young man drive down uh, one of the streets on campus and uh, some students were outside for a fire drill outside of of Watts Hall. Uh, Someone pulled a fire alarm. It was one of the engineering buildings. Yeah, yeah, it was Watts. Uh, Some of the students were outside. Someone had pulled a fire alarm, so they were just doing the typical drill of lining up outside. Um, a car came speeding down the street, uh, went up on the curb, hit a couple students. Uh, the driver got out, wielding a knife, uh, trying to hurt some of the people. Uh, luckily, he didn't have a gun. Started running down the street, uh, away from Watts Hall, towards the chemistry building. Luckily, a police officer responding to the fire alarm uh, was there in the right place and uh, shot the attacker. Um, stopping the attack so it was over very quickly thank goodness yeah yeah our episode though uh one of our reporters uh, was just walking down the street uh for the lantern uh his name is owen doherty and he ran toward the scene once he heard it was happening and just had to do his duty as a journalist to go cover that story and get the information people needed yeah so one of the things that that uh, many of us experienced at ohio state that day is, is that when it happened the only thing that anybody really knew uh in, in that moment was this text message that we all got. Yeah. Do you remember what it said? Uh, it, most of all, just said, like, there was a attacker on campus, uh, and they ended with our new slogan for these type of situations with run, hide, fight. Yeah, uh, so that, that's that's a calming, that's <laughs> yeah. a calming thing. You know, 10 out of 10 terror. You know, like, basically, the entire the entire university could be up in <laughs> yeah. flames from a terrorist attack, attack, and that would be the message that they would send out on the emergency response. No, be safe. Just run, hide, fight. <laughs> <laughs> right. So uh, what I found interesting about this student slant episode is that uh, there's this moment where you're getting a text message from the administration saying, get the heck out of there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's another part of of you guys as student reporters that sort of you know 
mass uncertainty if we don't go to the scene of the crime and try to figure out what's going on nobody's going to know mm. what happened um and you know and sure enough that was the reporting you guys did uh was invaluable for some of the international news media and things like that which is pretty fascinating yeah and the lantern uh, the phone was ringing off the hook from people constantly uh, cnn was calling fox news was calling msnbc was calling like all the biggest news stations in america and possibly the world were calling to report and get information from us uh and there's tons of stories from just different reporters and we only got one kid uh, but I mean, we've had we had photographers that were almost arrested uh, approaching the scene. Uh, he had to oh, like wow. pull out his press pass, show that <laughs> like he was not just there to take pictures. Uh, we had people just drop their stuff. Their teachers were like, "You can't leave the room," and they they just left. They just wanted to go. They had to go report on the story. Um, and our advisors were telling us, "They you have to go out. You have to report it. We can't just sit here." See, that's what I find to be the most fascinating about this as, as a professor myself, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the one thing I'm supposed to do as a professor is to not get undergrads hurt yeah. under any circumstances. Mm-hmm. And here's these journalism professors telling you guys to grow at, at that point for all anybody knew the, I mean, according to the text message, the, the event was still ongoing, Yeah, you know, for all they knew, they was still, uh, in the midst of attack and maybe there was more than one attacker. Nobody really knew what was going on. And it is in that moment that the journalism professor <laughs> go go out and figure out what's. Well, going Well, they went out. with us. It's just oh, they did. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fair. Uh, jump in front of the bullets, I guess, right? So they get tenure. But um, so I, I I thought as a professor, it was a particularly fascinating uh, scene of events. Now, there's one other thing I I think we should probably talk about, which is that. I think a day or two after the attack, you guys realized that you had ta- that the the student paper had talked to this student before. Yeah. So can you say a few words about that? Yeah, it was sort of just a large oddity uh, that we just had happened to have a series earlier uh, in the semester about just people of OSU, and he was one of the first students that we interviewed. It was early August. Um, we were just talking, just looking for students to talk to. He was sitting at a picnic table uh, over near the RPAC or something like that. And our editor in chief just sat down with him and started talking. And he was a Somalian immigrant. Uh, he just got here. He he seemed to be fine with his studies. Did fine at Cleveland State. Um, then was came it Cleveland to, State or was it Columbus State? Oh, Columbus State. State. Yeah. And then he came to Ohio State and was doing fine with his grades and everything seemed fine. And then, uh, I don't know, he must have just snapped. Yeah, well, I, if if I recall the the interview you guys did with him, uh, you know, well before the event, I, one of the things he said he, is he had trouble finding places to pray on campus. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one one of the, you know, in transferring from a new new place, it's it's natural that you know he may not even know where the bathrooms are, right? Yeah. yeah. So I mean. Uh, there, but there's a few different places on campus where people do pray uh, to um, for the different prayers that happen through the day, and, and I, you know, he, I guess he was having trouble figuring out where those places were, and, and sometimes they're not marked. Like the basement of the basement of the 18th Avenue Library is is mm-hmm. a very popular place for people to uh, put down their mats and and, uh, and and pray at the, at the various times. So uh, it. It's a little bit understandable that, that that was part of the that that was a frustration for him at that at that point in time. Mm-hmm. Um, but it seems obvious from that interview that you guys did that um, you know 
there presumably it was some sort of mental health crisis that he mm. was going through is is that you know this was this was not i i, I forget if um i forget if you know uh you know isis claimed <laughs> the attack or not but you know it was clearly this was an isolated thing of personal health crisis of some mm-hmm. kind uh so when trump tweeted uh whatever he tweeted you know it it was Definitely missing the point of yeah of kind of what was going on. Now, one thing that uh, is important to mention is that Columbus has uh, a quite large population of Somali immigrants. A lot of people talk about, uh, I think it's Minnesota mm-hmm. that has a lot of uh, Somalis. So Minnesota, I think, is on the UN. Minnesota and Columbus are on uh, the UN list of cities. Because, you know, if, if you've gotten refugee status from Somalia and, and the conflict there is still ongoing... Um, you know, you're going to want to go to a place that has, a, you know, other people from your people group that will be there. And Columbus is one of the main places to go. And so uh, so he was coming from that that community. And uh, when Trump, you know, tweeted about it, it was kind of uh, an insult to, to all them. Some people say that Columbus, uh, Columbus is sometimes called America's Opportunity City because, uh, you know, the mayor's office, I think, just issued a press release that something like 11% of the residents of Columbus are immigrants, uh, most of them most of them legal immigrants. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, part of that immigrant population is uh, the Somalis. And what, what I found fascinating when I, because I, I came from, uh, so I grew up in Florida, I did my undergrad in Illinois, and so I came to Ohio. When I went and got an Ohio driver's license, you can take the driver's test in Somali. <laughs> did you know that? <laughs> no, I did not know that. And because they have so many Somalis here that we, you know, you'd rather them have a proper driver's license and be able to know how to follow the the laws of the road. So, um, you know, you can take a Somali, Spanish, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- I think that's an important context for the whole, just to get the whole picture of the event. And mm-hmm. so I just want to make sure that we kind of lay that groundwork before we listen to the recording. Is there anything else you think that we should try to cover? No, I, th- I think we're good. So, uh, so you're about to listen to uh, the student slant, and uh, it's a great student podcast by uh, students in journalism at Ohio State University. And uh, we thought this was a particularly fascinating episode, so we hope that you enjoy what you're about to hear. Thanks. Today on the student slant, we talk about last year's attack at Ohio State and covering crisis as a student journalist. So my younger brother um, was a freshman last year at Ohio State, and he was uh, majoring in social work. So he's at Stillman Hall on pretty much at the corner of 18th and college. And I was in the library on 18th, formerly known as SEL. And I had a little bit of gap there in between classes, had some time, walked over to meet up with my brother. And on the way over to walking to him, I just see sirens start flying down every road from every corner. I'm not on a road, I'm, I'm walking through a, a pathway, so I just see, uh, you know, sirens and cars coming from college, 18th, 19th, so pretty much every direction, and I just had a, a general curiosity, but I walked to Stillman, they don't let me in Stillman, they're like, go, they're like, go seek cover, but you know, not here, like the front door was locked, it was really weird, they'd already locked it, and so I, I go over to, um, I guess by that point the scene and, and they already they already had um 
yellow caution tape set up, but it wasn't this huge perimeter yet. It was 10, 15 yards. And I'm sitting there and I, I kind of start pacing and walking around and I get the first glimpse of, glimpse of a, a body on the ground. And at that point, I knew something was pretty serious, but I don't know what. And then I get the text of the, I want to say the first one is bizarre. It's run, hide, fight. And you're like, what in the world is going on? As I see a, a body literally laying on the ground. At that point, I don't know um, if it's a victim, um, if it's an attacker, if they're dead, if they're alive. But I would say within 60 seconds to two minutes, that entire scene doubled in the space that you were allowed to be near it and tripled in the amount of responders who were there. So I run to the journalism building in there. I mean, the hallways are empty. They're quiet. It's eerie. It, I couldn't tell people were in the classroom. I wasn't really paying attention. And um, lo and behold, the first person I run into is Nicole Kraft in the hallway. And I'd, I'd happened to take a picture of the what ended up being the attacker laying on the ground dead. And at that point, I think it was the first picture that uh, any of us had. And she was like, we need to know more. So we go into the newsroom, try and grab any information we have, which is literally nothing at that point. But our advisors say, go out there, figure out what's going on as there's a, you know, run, hide, fight, seek shelter type text, like um, take cover. And they're telling us to go outside and figure out what's going on. And um, we, we took it upon ourselves to at least try and gather some information. Some of the first responders tell you, um, take cover, seek safety, and you kind of walk away from them and don't go into the first building. And it was a good hour or two where no one really knew what was going on. There was a lot of people talking like they knew what was going on. But I want to say it was a good hour lockdown at least. And um, for us, it's just this frenzy in the moment of trying to gather information and you always want to balance your safety and, and the desire to seek information as a journalist. I'm Owen Doherty. I'm Zach Varda. I'm Jake Ray, and this is The Student's Land. So I think it's interesting because, um, you know, I got the text too. Um, I wasn't in any reporting classes at the time, so and I wasn't working for the Lantern, so I didn't go to the scene. Like, that's not my first instinct. Um so I guess um, you get the run, hide, fight text, but then your advisors tell you basically the exact opposite. Like, is there any, like, trepidation, or is it just like, all right, I'm going out, I'm covering this? Um, you definitely don't want to be, you know, an ambulance chaser. Those people have bad reputations. I, I definitely have a, a general curiosity of life and what's going on. Some people consider me nosy, but in this case, I was just curious, and I was so close to something with no answers to sit in a classroom just didn't seem right. And um, at that time, a lot of people thought the threat was ongoing, as did as we did. And so I I had to, for my own peace of mind, go out and understand what more was going on. And then I think secondarily, um, maybe I shouldn't admit to this, but the secondary reason was to, you know, provide information to a community or, or you know, report the news because it wasn't instinctual. But what was instinctual is to, I guess, kind of be in the thick of things and, and seek out the crowd or seek out just whatever event's going on. And uh, for me, that, that just drew me outside again. As you're trying to figure out what's going on, like you said, it was you know, a couple hours, nobody really knew what was going on. How's that process of trying to decide 
what to report, what to put out there. And I mean, it's always the, the question of, do you want to be first or do you want to be accurate? How, how's that decision-making process play out during such um, a, a major crisis? Yeah, for this, I mean, I think um, being accurate is, is the most important. And there was inaccurate um, information being spread immediately, probably by us as well, because we're, you know, things are getting passed along and we didn't know. But one thing I felt confident reporting and this, we went right back to the closest I was able to get to at that point, which was a, a third layer of caution tape. At this point, we might be 100 yards away from the actual scene. But I found some people who said they saw what took place. And that ended up being generally correct, whereas I, I talked to a male student and he said, I saw a dude run people over with his car and get out with a knife. That ends up being true. Other people added, there might be a second one, there might be a gun. We heard gunshots. Gunshots were heard, not by an attacker. So getting that information and then you always want to corroborate and, and confirm, but officials and authorities aren't giving you anything at that point so i can only report and confirm what i saw with my own eyes which is someone laying motionless on the ground i cannot confirm them dead but um i saw that so i'm i, I believe the lantern tweeted that uh shortly after and then we also tweeted shortly after uh witnesses say which that kind of covers us a little bit because witnesses say they saw X, Y, and Z, which ended up being someone with a car running people over, getting out to attack them. So that was kind of some base stuff that we thought we could report factually, and I'm not exactly sure the timeline, whether that was within that first hour, whether that kind of came along long, later along the lines. Yeah, so working with, I guess, the students trying to get information from them who just maybe saw from a window or uh, just were walking by, that that's not entirely reliable information but the police are conducting like an investigation while this is all going on what is it like working with uh, law enforcement in a crisis like this the police say very little and and that's understandable um the really cool thing about being at ohio state is that you you can try and establish some of those relationships i didn't have this at the time but someone had um the chief of police craig stone's cell phone number someone had dan headman who's the spokesman for the police um university police both of those cell phone numbers were had so we felt confident that when new information was coming out we were going to be some of the first to get it they'd done a pretty good job of talking to us either you know and even if they said we're not telling you anything right now at least they're responding, at least they're talking to you. Because anyone with boots on the ground, any cop, any first responder was was saying nothing. Maybe they knew nothing, but they just weren't saying anything at the time. And so you definitely, you don't confirm a lot of information until you hear it from authorities or a university official. But it was good that we were able to get a hold of them. I don't want to be like coarse and like um, refer to a tra tragedy as like a learning experience. That being said, this is a lot different than your your daily, you know, beat or sitting in a classroom. I mean, what did you pick up or learn from this experience as a journalist that, you know, you're not going to learn anywhere else? Yeah, nothing nothing teaches you quite like first experience or, you know, firsthand experience. I learned what it means, what it looks like. You see the videos, but when you do it, it, it just is different. Um, so what it means to think on your feet, what it means to be reporting out in the field and gathering information, 
um, firsthand and not secondarily? And I mean, it's a good question. I, I don't know if I learned something that that's super tangible in a way that I know will be repeated because I don't think that same situation will be repeated. Everyone's different. But I learned to be aware and to, um, you know, kind of keep your head on a swivel. Not that I was in danger, but but um, be ready for anything as well. So th- those were some things that I learned from, from being there. I mean, you said that you didn't feel like you were in danger. I was at the North Wreck at the time, and I had, if you know where that is, you can have a straight line of sight to exactly where it happened. Mm. And I got up, and a bunch of people were just looking over there. And then they just started, like, corralling us into the back boiler room. Mm-hmm. And the people in there definitely felt like they were in danger. I had a, there was a few people that were very, very scared. So I guess my question is, how do you kind of put that fear away and just go toward the scene like that? Well, if I'm remembering correctly, it's, it's hard to entirely feel like you're in danger when you're surrounded by quite literally 30 armed officers. So myself being not a threat to anyone else and not having a weapon, surrounded by people that are trying to keep me safe, I'm like, hey, what's the worst that can happen, you know? But um, I, I guess it's, some of it is an innate personality thing. I do enjoy the adrenaline rush. I do enjoy some of those scenarios. I like roller coasters, you know, maybe that's a, that's a parallel between someone who dislikes stuff like that and cannot be, you know, afraid when there's some danger. But to be honest, I think it might've been scarier from inside a building than from outside because outside I'm surrounded by, like I said, cops. And all I see is, is one person on the ground at no other point where people sprinting around where was there chases. That's kind of all I saw. But we heard that there might be a second person holed up in some parking garage, but they're in the parking garage. I'm sitting outside. I'm, they're surrounded by cops, too. So I'm just kind of waiting for the next thing that's happening. And as time passes, you feel less and less in danger, as I'm sure people in the classroom felt less at risk as more time went on. You know, initially, having a cop tell me to go inside, I definitely, like I said, I went into the journalism building, but I, I was ready to go back out didn't see immediate danger i guess it's if you don't see it you're kind of ignorant to it so if i'm not mistaken you had things like that you reported on picked up by national outlets um i guess this isn't really unique to crisis but just in general like as a student journalist like what's that like like you know when a national outlet you know picks up your work well to be honest i was uh in the introductory uh journalism class at that time so I did my best to kind of pass along as much information as I could to some some more experienced people here at The Lantern, uh, so I can't take a ton of credit for individual stories written. It was absolutely thrilling to to even have your name on a on a story, on an update, on a live tweet or something like that that ended up being the most accurate or only piece of information at the time, and I think a lot of people in The Lantern felt that way because you know, there were so many different aspects of it and new information coming in from different sides that it wasn't just one person that's like, hey, I'm reporting on this. It was definitely a team effort. But it was exhilarating, and it's, it sucks that it came from a tragedy like, like November 28th. But um, it, was, it was a really cool experience and one I won't forget. And uh, the national coverage only comes with those huge events, but I think the good reporting and those skills can still be cultivated even with smaller stuff.
with lower scale. Uh, kind of building on that, did you see a difference in the way the Lantern covered the attack versus the way the... I mean, the Lantern had interviewed the attacker, it turned out. Before it happened, did you feel like maybe, you know, this being your turf, you guys had a an advantage? Or not an advantage, but you were able to cover it, you know, better than, you know, someone coming into Columbus that's only here when major news happens. Yeah, I think we, and by we I mean the Lantern, which I was loosely associated with at the time, did an amazing job. And it starts with, like I said, someone had Dan Hedman's phone number. Someone had Chief Stone's phone number. I mean, that's no one flying in has those numbers. You you can Google whatever the contact is, but you don't have, hey, I'm going to get back to you as soon as I know something. And they tell you that and you believe them because you've worked with them before. And uh, I, I think that gave us a huge heads up. Being the first people, you know, already having been on campus was just half the battle of, because they just wouldn't let you anywhere close once the event took place. We're already there. They actually won't let us leave. So it's quite the opposite when you're covering this, this event. Um, and as it unfolds, all these people are trying to get this front row seat and access and information, but you're already there. You're, you're just waiting on it to come out. Yeah, that was cool because we really did get a lot of that first. You said that um, you didn't really, I guess, learn, or it's hard to put in words uh, what, it, what you learned from the experience. Do you think if something like that happened again, you would treat it the same way, or do you think you'd, I guess, be more, even more aggressive with it? That's a good question. I'd, I'd probably be more aggressive with it, and I'd probably trust my, my instinct a little bit more because at the time I'm, I'm new and I'm, I don't know what to expect, so we keep hearing there's more attackers and more stuff's going down, and in my head at the time I'm like, I've been out here for an hour, nothing's happening. Like you know, my understanding of it is we don't let people hang out in parking garages if they're a threat. Like, you go get them or something's going to unfold. Nothing unfolds. So now I look back on it and I'm like, to be honest, the whole event was done by the time I saw it. And I saw a victim laying on the ground and and people bloodied getting in the ambulance. And I should have stayed right there and, and covered everything that unfolded right then and there and not left. Not that I left, I, you know, I went to journalism and came back, but I would just stick with my instinct and stay, stay in the thick of it instead of chasing what ended up being this empty lead of a second attacker, which we did, and that's a learning experience, so I definitely learned from that, but definitely be aggressive and definitely keep my, my eyes open, but um, I think I, would, I learned to, to talk to the closest people, to talk to the first people you see I don't care if they had their headphones in and they were looking the other way. The, the closest people to that scene were either attacked or firsthand witnesses that were quickly corralled and put in, I believe, and I, I'm not positive, but were corralled and, you know, put in a, a, a place so that that information wasn't getting dispersed right away. They talked to authorities first before they got to the news. It would have been really cool to be able to talk to them at the same time. You talked about how there was the... Uh... Well, I guess, a rumor of a second attacker. What is it like in a crisis situation when there's some information coming to you and you're trying to follow that, that lead, but it turns out that there's nothing? How do you deal with all this information coming in, piecing out what is the truth and what is just speculation at the moment? 
Well, like we talked about earlier, the reason we went with the second attacker lead is because it came from officials at the time. We were being told this is an ongoing threat. We, we have put the parking garage on lockdown. So to us, we're naturally thinking, why is the parking garage on lockdown? Okay, this is where the ongoing threat is. So we're told that by officials. I'm waiting. If you guys can visualize campus at the, uh, at the bottom of like Woody Hayes Drive where the Blackwell is. So I kind of have like an eye on campus and an eye on the parking garage. Nothing's really happening in the parking garage. We kind of keep going back towards campus. But at that point, like, we, like I said, the crime scene's done. So then we find out a little bit later after the lockdown's lifted that let's say the threat's over. We go back to the newsroom and the next piece of information is, well, who's the attacker? Which we ended up having first. And by we, I mean the Lantern, some of the senior staff there. So then it became, how do we accurately report on what happened and confirm who the attacker is? And once we confirmed who the attacker was, that's really what went national because um, we were the first people to, to know and to confirm. So again, with Ohio State being such a big campus, um, if something like this happened again, what is, I guess, the game plan? How do you think the Lantern is better prepared to cover something like this now? Yeah, so I talked a little bit about what, what I learned, but I know we learned some things as, as an organization and how we're going to structure things. Because to be honest, I think we did a good job, but we were scrambling. And I was never texting my editor telling him, here's what I'm doing. Here's what you, you know, he telling me what I should be doing and what he's doing. It was kind of like a few people were in the right place at the right time. And there was really not a lot of coordination. And now we have a pretty detailed game plan with, um, just trying to allocate different people in different spots and know, hey, you're the first person there. Stay where you're at. We're going to look for some information here. It, you know, To be honest, not everyone has to sprint out of the newsroom when an event takes place. Sometimes your best role is waiting by the phone, making phone calls, looking up online. Um, we have a lot of uh, social media apps where we can understand what people are talking about on social media. And a lot of times... We talked about the instinct is to run towards this event, and maybe a few too many of us ran towards the event. Who knows what the next event's going to be? Something's going to happen. God forbid it's a you know a terrorist attack, but there's just so many people. Something's inevitable, whether it be you know infrastructure, building, or you know anything like that. So the way we're set up right now, with the amount of people involved with the lantern, and I would I believe this is probably true with a lot of newsrooms there's someone in a different corner of campus at all times. So if I don't happen to be in that corner next time and I'm in the newsroom, I'm not going to sprint out of the newsroom to stand right next to the person who might be reporting it. You know, we need to divide and conquer. So I think we kind of have that in play for, for next time. That was a great conversation. Join us next week for more student perspectives on the student slant.